Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, December 8th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the third-party administrator over Jackson's water system meets with community members. Then the Asylum Hill Project unearths stories of patients buried in the old lunatic asylum cemetery. Plus, how community engagement in the capital city earned a JSU student the John Lewis Youth Leadership Award. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Residents of Jackson got the opportunity to meet and question the man tasked with managing operations of the city's water system. Last night, Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba, Administrator Ted Hennepin, and city officials hosted a town hall. Lamamba opened his remarks saying he's very supportive of the agreement between the city and the federal government. We're excited about this agreement because it brings that expertise that we're talking about. We're excited about this agreement because we know that we can work with partners who have a sincere interest in providing safe drinking water only to the residents of Jackson. No one who's looking for a political purpose to be able to have this ongoing Jackson versus the rest of the state fight that that we continue to see in in iteration after iteration or way after way, right? Uh, No one who who is trying to take advantage of the city. And so that is, if you want to know what the private closed-door conversations between me and Administrator Regan have been, what that has conversation has said is, I understand what you're dealing with, Mayor. I understand what the relationship has been. The conversation between the President of the United States and the Vice President of the United States was, I see how there is discrepancy and disparity between how the state is supporting you. And we're going to find a way not only to help you, and this is the last reason why we like this agreement, but to get you some money. The meeting was held in South Jackson at Forest Hill High School, which is often one of the first locations to lose water pressure and the last to have it restored when there is a disruption in the service. Hennepin was in Jackson during the water plant recovery efforts in September before being appointed third-party administrator. The last time I was here at Forest Hill High School was a Sunday afternoon in September, or I think it was September. My days and time get really mixed up living in two places. But uh, we were tracing and chasing water. 
Um, it's something that I did a lot over the last three months, so I feel like I know a little bit about your city. Uh, I ended up parking in the back because all the water valves are off of the street there at your back entrance, and I didn't even know there was a front entrance because I was focused on finding why there wasn't water here. Um, and you are in a unique position here in Forest Hill in this area because of your elevation and the fact you're right on the edge of where the well water system and the city water system, the surface water system come together. And so um, we continue to try to figure this out. And I'm holding out hope. We've got a, a model under development that we haven't had. We really need a tool to help understand what's going on in the system. And while there's been tremendous focus on the plants, <coughs> And, and I can't take credit for this quote because I can't even remember who was talking to me this way, but said, why are you just focusing on the heart? I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, the plants are the heart of the water system. They're the pump pushing it out. He said, but fixing the heart, if you haven't fixed all the bleeding hemorrhaging that's going on throughout the body, doesn't solve it. And so, you know, we're, I think we get the plants, are, believe it or not, the easy part of this equation. And we're really going to try to figure out how to get a lot of work done in the distribution system to solve these problems that we're having. Uh, get the pressure right, find ways to deal with that on a different <coughs> way. And so the model's gonna help us get there. Residents raised questions about billing, repairs, and water quality. Hennepin says nearly 100 miles of small diameter pipes are in need of replacement, citing the narrow pipes as the cause of major bottlenecks in the distribution center. Hennepin says operations of the plants and distribution centers will be contracted, and the city's public work staff will have opportunities to switch their employment if they qualify. Before we even got the order signed, we were trying to find a way to contract operate the Curtis plant, the fuel plant, and the distribution system. And so under the terms of those contracts that we've been considering, it's picking up city employees that have the qualifications to do the work the contract needs to do. Because no contractor has a staff sitting around waiting to move to Jackson. I mean, they've got a few people maybe that are ready to come here because it's a great place, good restaurants. But at the end of the day, they depend on having a quality workforce available here so they don't have to relocate folks among their other contracts. So what's going to happen for all the water plant personnel and the water maintenance personnel is they will be interviewed by the contractor and they will be made offers if they meet the contractor's needs. And at that point, they'll have to make a decision because it gets to the retirement piece. We can't match, you know, a contractor can't match the PERS retirement. And so the folks that, that get an offer from the contractor and accept that offer, they'll get probably, I can't guarantee, but I'm, based on the contract, they'll be made whole from a benefit and pay rate, and I'm assuming they're going to be paid actually a lot more um, just based on the fairly low salaries because you've got retirement benefits and things that somewhat offset that in public employees. And they'll have a 401k, the standard 401k type retirement benefit that comes from the contractor. And so there's going to be individuals that have to make a decision. How far vested am I in the PERS system? And do I want to leave it and go to this opportunity with the contractor, which may actually be a very good opportunity for them, but they will no longer be city employees. They no longer be covered with PERS. If they choose not to take that, then the city's taking them back and trying to find a place for them within the city. Research is underway to identify grants to fund upgrades to the system's infrastructure. 
Mayor Lumumba says the city is not planning to raise water rates but won't rule out adjustments either. Coming up, the Asylum Hill Project unearthed stories of patients buried in the old lunatic asylum cemetery. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, host of the original Southern Remedy, the show where I answer your medical questions. Subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on any podcasting app. I'm Scott Tong. It is the season to listen to Taylor Swift, at least for students enrolled in a course about Swift's songwriting. The really concrete and intense narrative moments punctuating that song made me Mm. realize this was what my students would get really excited about. That's next time in Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Mississippi Lunatic Asylum was established in 1855 on what is now the grounds of the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Over its years in operation, the institution treated tens of thousands of patients. Residents who died in the care of the asylum and not claimed by families were buried on campus. They're now also the subjects of the Asylum Hill Project. Dr. Raph Dudlake is the Director of Bioethics and Medical Humanities at UMMC. He says the multidisciplinary study will preserve the memory of those patients. In part two of our conversation, he begins with stories unearthed during the Asylum Hill Project. So far. Uh, we have met descendants of a gentleman who had a vitamin dist- deficiency during the Great Depression, developed psychiatric symptoms, was admitted to the asylum, and died there. He's buried in the cemetery on the Medical Center campus. We have met the descendants of a member of the elite planner class from down in Claiborne County, whose whose parents died. She developed depression. She was admitted to the asylum, died there, She's buried in the, in the cemetery. We've also learned about a, a freedman, a gentleman who was born into slavery, freed, had some sort of psychiatric issue, and spent 40 years as a patient in the asylum until he died. He's buried in the cemetery. So we have these three very contrasting stories of a poor white farmer who was so poor he developed vitamin deficiency. We have this story of a freed slave, and we have a story of a member of the planter class, the elite of Mississippi of that time. All three are buried in unmarked graves in this cemetery. So that's the type of stories that we are uncovering as we talk to these descendants and learn more about the identities of the people buried there. Have you been able to find out more about how their care was handled? Yes, we have learned a great deal. Um, The asylum was different things across time. Um, uh, 
when it opened in 1855, it was a state-of-the-art facility designed by the leading psychiatrist architect of the day, Thomas Kirkbride. It was a really state-of-the-art mental care. The state of Mississippi put a lot of resources toward that. Over its 80-year history, it was, um, like many mental health institutions, it ultimately became overcrowded. And at uh, 80 years into its existence, became a crumbling facility that was ultimately replaced by the state hospital at Whitfield. So it spans the entire spectrum of really great care to really marginal care. The other thing that's important about the history of the asylum that um, also impacts the care that the patients received is it existed in the antebellum South. It was present in the Civil War. It was operational during Reconstruction. It was operational during the Jim Crow era, through World War I, during the Great Flood of 1927, um, the pandemic of 1918, the Great Depression. So all of these things influenced the type of patients, the diagnoses that came there for care, and the resources available to care for them. So it's a very rich, complicated history. It can't be seen in, in any one way. What will you do with all of the information and the oral histories that you collect? Where will they be accessible? Uh, we are building a, a database of this information. We're working with uh, uh, some funders, um, such as the National Endowment for the Humanities, to build a database, a repository of all of these stories and all of the information that we're collecting. And we have put together a group of scholars called the Asylum Hill Research Consortium. And we have historians and anthropologists and archaeologists and legal scholars and database experts and ethicists and philosophers, even literary scholars, to help us uh, build a repository of information that can be maximally useful for scholars. And that database will reside here at University Medical Center. So you are having an event, Madness in Mississippi, the State Lunatic Asylum, 1855 to 1935, at the Past Christian Public Library. It's December 10th, this Saturday, 10.30 to 11.30. Are you looking for people to come out? Do you contact family members? Do you find out ways to contact them so that they will come? Uh, we advertise in the community, and we um, use the great contacts that the local libraries maintain. Uh, they know how to connect with their community, so we work through those um, institutions. We also work through genealogy groups and civic groups. And then we have a uh, our descendant community that we've already established, which is just over a hundred people right now, and uh, use their connections to spread the word about these events. Lastly, when you talk to the descendants, is there despair or hurt any type of emotion associated with how their loved one may have 
been treated at the facility during different spans of time? Uh, the the dominant um, emotion is curiosity. Um, these are people who want to fill in gaps in family stories. And the response has been overwhelmingly positive to seek this kind of information to fill in these gaps. Um, we feel it's, uh, uh, I'm not sure what closure means two generations away from an individual, but um, if someone says, well, I know my great-grandmother or great-uncle went to the asylum and died there, that's all that they know. So we can help do the research and help fill in these family stories. So um, it's, it's, it's not um, as much a negative emotion as it is a positive curiosity to um, to fill in these narrative gaps. Any point that you'd like to make that I didn't ask you about? I, I think that I want to emphasize that um, that we have inherited the medical center has inherited these patients, and we are going to care for them in the most respectful, professional way possible. And we are going to meet our other two missions of education and research as we do this work. Dr. Ralph Didlake, Director of the Asylum Hill Project, thank you so much for sharing. This is very interesting. We appreciate your time. You are very welcome. Coming up, how community engagement in the capital city earned a JSU student the John Lewis Youth Leadership Award. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thursdays on MPB are about family. Creature Comforts at 9 talks about your fur and feather babies. Autocorrect at 10 a.m. helps you understand that vehicle, you baby. Southern Remedy at 11 focuses on the children in your life. Find all our local shows on your favorite podcasting app. Local shows on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The John Lewis Youth Leadership Award was created in 2021 by the National Association of Secretaries of State. It seeks to recognize gifted, civic-minded young people in the state each year. This year, Secretary of State Michael Watson has announced Maisie Brown of Hines County and Bobby Hudson of Harrison County, a senior at the University of Mississippi, as co-recipients of the award. Brown is a student at Jackson State who has been a leading voice for change in the capital city. She shares her thoughts on receiving the award, starting with her nomination from lawmakers David Blunt and Sakia Summers. Um, I actually went to school with uh, Senator Blunt's son um, when we were in middle school. But, I mean, he's definitely always been, uh, you know, someone, even, you know, in my work with ACLU, if we need someone to come speak. Um, like, recently we had a summer program um, for uh, the interns that we had sponsored through a grant that we did. And, you know, he was very willing and able to come and speak to him about the legislative process so he can get more involved. Um, Representative Summers, I mean, just kind of a years-long relationship of working in the same spaces. She's spoken to my classes at Jackson State. 
um, she, you know, went to Jim Hill High School, and my dad is the principal there now. And so they've definitely always been very encouraging um, over the years of the work that I have done. Um, and so I, you know, I guess they were just like, yeah, that could be a good person to nominate for this. Yeah. So the um, press release says that this award is given to gifted, civic minded young individuals in the state each year. Um, Going to that term civic minded, can you tell our listeners what you're involved in here recently or overall um, that really benefits the community? Uh, So definitely one of the things. So I'm the advocacy coordinator at the ACLU of Mississippi. And one of the one of our biggest initiatives right now in the advocacy department is really focused on trying to get more young people involved in the work that we do. Um, And so we recently created our Leaders in Action program, uh, which is for anybody can sign up to be a part of it, um, ages 15 to 24 across the Mississippi. Um, And we just really want to give them the opportunity to attend different advocacy trainings, leadership trainings, you know, volunteer for different events where we have, invite them to the events that we're having. Um, different things like that. That's definitely one of the biggest initiatives that we've been working on. And then most recently uh, with the water crisis, uh, we formed, well, I formed outside of the ACLU, um, the Mississippi Student Advocacy Team. Um, And we've really been focused on getting water delivered um, to the most vulnerable communities across Jackson um, in the midst of the ongoing water crisis. Um, And so to date we've delivered, I mean, at least over 2,000 cases of water and impacted over 500 households. And so we are just, you know, really excited to continue doing that work. We've even expanded. We've donated lots of um, different care packages to the homeless community um, across uh, Jackson. Most recently, we're working uh, with uh, with 601 for Period Equity, which is um, in a forming nonprofit uh, started by a couple of my friends in Vicksburg, Mississippi, um, and we're donating over $500 worth of menstrual um, products to to incarcerated women um, actually this weekend. And so we're, we're just really excited to, you know, keep expanding the different ways that we can help the community and the different ways that people can help us help the community. That sounds like such an impressive resume of civic involvement. Can you really explain to me what um, inspired you to get started in this kind of work? Um, Definitely just outside. I really got intrigued by just wanting to be a part of, you know, a part of change and stuff in like eighth grade when I, um, we had the chance, I tell this story all the time. Um, we had the task of redesigning the state flag. And in my head, I was trying to figure out what was wrong with the state flag that we had then. Um, and so it kind of led me down a rabbit hole of just doing research and, you know, figuring out, um, just how bad the state flag was at that time and why it shouldn't be flown. And so that led to me, um, writing an opinion piece i just like emailed to a bunch of people saying who will publish it and it ended up being published and it just kind of led me down a whole new world of activism i didn't even know existed um but even just more so the more current current work that i do now is really just been seeing the need i mean it's it's very hard to to not see what's wrong you know with jackson or what's wrong with our community or where we could really do our part in helping that and so just really seeing the need um, not just wanting to be super complacent and, and acting like it doesn't exist and just trying. You know, we know we're not going to solve the problem, especially as soon as we're not going to write the legislation that eliminates, you know, what we're helping with, but we're just trying to, you know, do our part in the best way that we can. And, and we just want people to know that, you know, you don't have to be tasked with solving the problem, but you can 
you know, do your part. If everybody just did their part, we could we could see a really, really big, you know, change or impact on these issues. And Macy, what year are you? I well, I'm technically a junior right now, but I will be a senior in the spring. Congrats on that. Do you have any um, post-school plans that relate to this kind of work, or are you going to pursue a different path once you get out of JSU? I would like to continue this work in what capacity. I'm not sure yet. Um, I've been kind of looking at some different grad programs um, as well. So I think I'm still figuring out that part. But, I mean, helping people always be kind of the driving force. And so something. Just as, you know, the job I have now and the things I do now kind of falling in my lap, I'm going to assume that after graduation, they'll continue falling in my lap. And Macy, for a student or someone your age who wants to get involved in work like this, but is maybe a little reluctant or feels like their contributions won't matter, what is your advice to that person? I mean, I, I kind of had this, had this question not too long ago. I mean, it's literally just about doing it. If you're focusing on... Not say if you're focused on the impact, you're focused on the wrong thing, but all you can do is control what you can control. And all you can do is move with genuine and pure intention. So regardless of what you feel your impact may be or what people may recognize you for or what if people even recognize at all, that's not really the focus point. The focus point is, okay, I see this problem. How can I, what can I contribute? To what capacity can I contribute? And as long as I'm doing that, and I'm doing that and my heart is in the right place, I'm doing this for the right reasons, then I can't lose. Like, they, you, you, don't, you don't ever lose trying to help people. That's the biggest thing. And so just taking, taking that first step, just doing it, focusing on what you can control. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.